Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Stigma. I'm Ciara Nova, your host, and in this week's episode, we will be talking about psychiatric medication in mental health. The negative press about medication is unfounded. There are countless papers, news articles, and even psychiatrists themselves who criticize the use of psychiatric medication, such as antidepressants or antipsychotics, stating that psychiatric drugs are doing more harm than good, that you know, overdiagnosis of mental health disorders lead to overprescription of these drugs, and not to mention the interest of big pharma pushing these drugs and amongst other critiques. So we'll be discussing some of these issues that are faced in the field today and how to look at it moving forward with the input of one of the leading psychiatrists in the field. Our guest speaker today, who I am super, super excited to have, is Dr. Derek Tracy. So Dr. Tracy is a medical director of West London NHS Trust in the UK and the senior lecturer at King's College London and University College London. Dr. Tracy has published more than 100 peer-reviewed scientific papers, 15 book chapters, and was awarded the 2015 Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience Teaching Excellence Award which I have no surprise there, as he was one of the best lecturers I have ever encountered myself. Dr. Tracy is also the host of the Kaleidoscope Live webinars, and outside of his work, he enjoys running in enthusiastic people, and he hates butters and cats. (laughs) Dr. Tracy, a very big and warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. I love the webinars uh, you host at the Maudsley Learning Center with Dr. Dan, Dr. Don, and Professor Suki, because in every webinar, you guys take a very interesting research paper, and then each of you give an insight into your thoughts about you know future implications for that work. And there's no right or wrong answer, but it's just interesting to see so many different perspectives uh, from researchers in the field. And basically, you know, you each give what makes us viewers also question our learning and our conditioning. Because um, I think one of the dangers of having a strong belief in something is that we stop questioning its foundation or what it stands for, because it resonates so much with us, and that may be problematic because it can stop us from relearning. So as someone who quite strongly believes in holistic forms of treatment for mental health and strongly believes against psychiatric medication... I know that sometimes we need to challenge the way that we think based on our biases. So I couldn't think of a better person to discuss this than yourself. So I want to start off with this. When I believe when looking at depression, the statistics show that one in three people who do not need medication are prescribed psychiatric drugs and vice versa. So in other words, people who are actually depressed are not getting treated and those who aren't are. So what do you think is happening here? Why are so many people who don't need drugs are being prescribed it and those who do are not? That's a really interesting question. And it's very hard to get really good, accurate data on this. So it's often a bit of an estimate of the, the challenges. What, what do we not see? Who's out there and not getting any help? And then what help is being provided for those who ask for it? What definitely happens at least some of the time, is that some people are having different forms of distress in their life that manifest perhaps with them feeling anxious or low, but maybe not to a degree where we think that medication would be an appropriate intervention, or maybe we think a social intervention or psychological intervention would be optimal. But people do often end up on medication. I think there are complex reasons for it. I think sometimes people are asking for it. I think sometimes a lot of this happens in primary care. There might be limited time, and this is not blaming 
GPs or primary care physicians in any way, that there's a limited repertoire of what we have to offer. Mm. So sometimes it's an attempt to do something to see. Sometimes it's in response to a person's ask. And then, of course, we have the converse problem of there are more people with depression getting no help at all than those who receive some. So, and this is, I suspect, true of many parts of healthcare in general. Mm -hmm. How do services provide and try to meet need, which is typically greater than we can provide? Yeah, I think you made an interesting point about you know, not blaming GPs because it's easy for us to say that, oh, overprescription is a big, big issue. But then sometimes there's not enough resources and there's more people that need the help. So then medication becomes the easier option to, to help people. Um, whereas maybe like psychological treatments has a long waiting list, et cetera. And, and I think it also there's an immediacy to medication. So it's something you can have it now. And it requires less from the person. You have to take the tablet. You have to, you have to swallow a pill. It's, it's easier in a way. And again, this is not blaming a person, but I think for many things in life, this is in physical health too. So oftentimes interventions we might wish to be social in nature. So in terms of looking at exercise and, mm-hmm. and having more friendships and, and not being in difficult relationships, but they're quite complex things to do. And so it's often easier in a sense. But I think there's another issue that comes up here. There's a danger with this conversation. So I think that is true in mental health and physical health, that oftentimes we might wish to prioritize social or psychological interventions. But one danger with the conversation is that can lead to the inference that therefore medication is wrong Mm -hmm. or bad or doesn't have a place. And so the question for me is, when is it optimal to give medication. If we take cardiovascular disease, Mm -hmm. what we'd really want to do is social interventions and have people having good diets and exercising as much as they can. Then we'd want to maybe think about psychological interventions, trying to nudge behavior where people's lifestyles are becoming less healthy. And then there is a role for medication, for example, to reduce blood pressure or cholesterol. So it's about the right intervention at the right time. So a medication to reduce one's blood pressure doesn't treat the underlying condition it doesn't treat what caused it it will have side effects and yet it may still have a role but i think you're right so i think it's about not blaming medication or people who take medication Mm -hmm. but how do we optimize that and i think that's the real challenge for us right yeah in line with that i want to know i want to talk about what we know in the field as the biopsychosocial model which kind of ties in with what you said um, how we want to give, you know, social interventions, but then there's also the medication that comes into place. So what is the biopsychosocial model? And then with the knowledge, with that knowledge in relation to my first question, how do we know when someone actually needs, for example, those psychiatric drugs or whether they need um, a social intervention instead? So the biopsychosocial model is a phrase that's commonly used in medicine to reflect the fact that most, almost all health conditions, whether it's physical health or mental health, can have a biological aspect. So it could be from an individual's genes or how their body's made up, a psychological aspect in terms of how we engage with the world. And again, that can be in as much in physical health as it is in mental health. And a social component about seeing us at our place in the world. I, I think that's useful to think about biopsychosocial insofar as it encourages to see more broadly. So for a doctor, it encourages them to see outside the individual's 
body and their physicality to think about how they're thinking and their place in the world. Where I think it's less helpful is I think it's the wrong way around. So it perhaps because of the order of the words, it emphasizes or, or prioritizes bio. And I often have a mental image of a, of a pyramid and at the, the bottom is the larger part is typically social. Mm-hmm. So there are issues called the social determinants of health. So the most important things for your long-term health will be things like your employment status, your education, the, the relationships around you. Then less important than that, but still really important, tends to be psychological issues. And then the final part tends to be the biological. So I would prefer to phrase it the socio-psycho-bio model. It's mm-hmm. a bit, bit harder to say, and it's less well-established uh, as a phrase. So I think it's a phrase with utility, but I think it emphasizes things probably the wrong way around. So the, where it helps us in, in terms of our previous conversation a, a moment ago is it reminds us that whatever the issue, so I, I'll, I'll probably intentionally contrast a physical and mental health condition to show that there are parallels. We, if we think again about cardiovascular medicine or we think about depression we might want to think is there a biological component to this so there are there are physical things in one's body that can actually cause depression there are different things that can happen for example problems with your thyroid and so forth your genetic makeup and it's the same for having say high blood pressure there are psychological factors that can impact depression or cardiovascular functioning, and there's social factors. Again, we can think about all things around us in the world that might make us more likely to have high blood pressure and have a stroke or a heart attack and things more likely to have depression. What's difficult, I think, is saying with confidence for an individual person, I think it's X percent of this or Y percent of that, because I think they interplay, Mm -hmm. and I think it's really hard to know. But, but I suppose it's about making us consider each of those issues. And to go back to your first question and, and why so many people on medication, it's often easiest to try move the bio bit. It's yeah. often easiest if you come in with high blood pressure, well, I can give you a pill for it. If you come in with depression or low mood, I can give you a pill. We could start it today. You can have it in an hour. Yeah. Whereas if I think about some of the psychosocial things and you say to me, but I live in a really diff- difficult neighborhood and mm-hmm. there's lots of crime, I'm what can I do? So th- this is where we can recognize them. But our, that, that pyramid, it's easiest to push it at the top yeah. and to push the biological part. No, absolutely agree with you. And it's sad that, you know, in a sense, the bio is easier to push rather than the societal, because then that would involve bigger parties, right? Like public policies and things like that involving community, which, like you said, are a lot more you know, difficult, but I sometimes do wonder also about like self-autonomy and self-responsibility. Like even when you mentioned something like cardiovascular, like is it our responsibility as well to take care of our mental health as well as our physical health as much as, for example, you know, your clinician would be? Um, although, of course, adverse life events, we can't avoid them. And sometimes we're put in a situation where our mental health suffers. But I wonder if that self-awareness and constantly teaching yourself about um, conditions and ways to help yourself is also like one's own responsibility. Yes, I think so. Although I would probably soften the language slightly in, insofar as there, are, I, I see a, a large role for health professionals mm-hmm. to engage and educate and to inform and, and to also help move policy. Right. So I think, I think that we all have a role as part of society there can be a danger that the word responsibility can 
be slightly weaponized mm. against individuals. It, it can feel, even if it's not the intent, well, you, you should be, and it's a, a big finger pushing towards right. it. You, why are you not? It, there, there, there can feel a blame element to it. I, I know it's not your intent and what you said with it, but I think people can sometimes feel that. Well, why don't you just go out and exercise? And that also comes back to some of the social parts too, that again, if we think about those determinants of health and social being a huge part, people's education, people's opportunities in life. So maybe it's easier for you and I. We're, we're talking over the, the, the internet here. We've got Wi-Fi connections. We're in warm, heated homes. We have more opportunities. Perhaps our education levels are higher than average. We can have a sense of autonomy and an ability to do things. Sometimes people won't feel that empowered. They won't feel able to. They might be in a difficult relationship. And it's easy, for example, for Perhaps you're right to say, well, I think you should leave that person. And, and these can be really complex issues. Or maybe someone doesn't have the money to move out. So responsibility, I, I think that there, there is validity to the concept that we need to help people to be empowered and to help themselves. But there's a tension point that we don't want to blame at the same time. So, yes, and, and I think we can all do things for ourselves. So I, I love distance running and I, I, I do it. I, mean, I enjoy it when mm-hmm. I do it. But I, I do it for my physical health, and I'm really aware it helps my mental health. That's one of the yeah. things I do every week that I know helps me feel better. It gives me time to think and relax. And so we should be te- we shouldn't be passive. In the same way, I think most of us will have some awareness, for example, about our diet and what we eat, and we'll make some attempts to try have balance within it. So I, I think it's important for us to do it. But as a healthcare professional, I'm always reminded that my job and my obligation is to support everybody and if someone comes in and can't or won't do some of those steps I, 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 I still must do my very best to help them no absolutely and thank you so much for bringing these points because it's super important and I absolutely uh, did not mean it in a derogatory term um, but more in a sense for example when I suffered from severe anxiety because I went through a very you know traumatic experience um, for five years um, and I was prescribed Xanax, I noticed that the Xanax made me feel worse. So instead, what I did is I started researching and trying to find out, getting back to the root of my anxiety and, you know, not being passive, as you use that word, which I really like. So uh, absolutely, we have to consider, you know, people's status, where, where they are and our privileges, like you mentioned. Uh, but I meant it more on a level of self-awareness and trying to Absolutely, and I, I certainly I didn't I didn't perceive it that you meant it in, in a negative way, but I'm oh. I'm aware how that can feel that way, and even you've been honest and talk, spoken about your own health. So if you, if you don't mind me reflecting back on that, that 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 there there have been times in terms of responsibility that well-intentioned people have said to loved ones, well sort it out well why don't you just get beyond it stop feeling anxious stop feeling yeah. low and it's it, it, it's an advice that's usually from a good good place right. but it's it's putting a responsibility on someone where they think well of, of course if i could i would so the, the, this and it because it takes work and, and it's, it's difficult so I, I think it's probably the bigger point is Yes, I agree with you, right. And then it's for all of us to be mindful of language and how it feels and yeah. providing support. So it's the, it's, a, it's a tension point. Absolutely, Dr. Tracy. Um, 
it, it's so funny because you mentioned about that thing. Me and my best friend, we, she always shares this meme with me because uh, she was going through a depression where she tells, you know, the memes like you tell your parents, like, I'm depressed. And they're like, well, don't be. And then it's kind of like, yeah. great, my depression yeah. is fixed, you know, thank, thanks for the tip kind of thing. So uh, yeah. that never occurred to me before. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like, oh, OK, I didn't know that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the diagnosis of mental health itself, because, you know, we know at least people in the field and my listeners are quite aware. I've spoken a little bit about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, so the DSM-5, how disorders are being classified. Uh, and if you haven't, please do check out our introduction to mental health uh, episode. But um, in your lectures, you mentioned something which I find, which I really, you know, which resonated with me and I really agreed with. And I hope um, I understood it correctly. But let's say, for example, let's take the disorder depression. Um, you gave the example of the depre- the depressions. Um, so from what I understood is that we can perhaps start looking at mental disorders as a spectrum or rather understand that there's more than just one type of depression rather than just diagnosing everyone as the same type of depression. Did I understand that correctly? Could you clarify what you meant by that? Sure. I think, I mean, my general take on diagnoses and diagnostic systems is that they're problematic. Mm -hmm. They have flaws and misuse and equally, they can find. Sorry, I have bins being taken outside at the moment with bad timing. They, they, they can have some utility. So it goes back to the issue at the beginning, maybe about treatment used in the right way for the right person. It can have benefit, yeah. and then they can be misused too. And I, I think one of the challenges for us in mental health is that it's the most complex part of us as, as people. So we talk about equality between physical health and mental health, and that's a that's a good call. But yet it is different. It's different in a couple of ways for me. One is it's much more complicated. The brain is the most complex thing we know about in the universe. And secondly, it's so personal to us. Mm. We, we can almost externalize it. If my hand is sore, I can look at it out there and, and it's different. Whereas when it's my mind, it's who, it's who I am and how I feel. And so it's, it's quite complex. And, and I think a simplistic approach to diagnoses tends to fail to say depression is, mm. anxiety is, psychosis is. But we can recognize patterns. So if, if I, we had 10 people in the room with depression, I would expect them all to have different life histories and different issues, but they would have similarities too. And where diagnoses can help us is potentially beginning to think about what we might do next. How does it inform our care? How does it help us think about education for the person or going back to your point about the, the, the responsibility challenge about what might you do for yourself mm-hmm. so it, it does help us in that way but i think the binary approach to say depression is it's false and so i think of depressions i think some people are probably likely to have a more genetic components mm-hmm. to their mental health problem some people it's going to be much more social some people psychologically orientated and really complex interplays at the moment, the challenge is we can get that as a concept, but we, we don't know how to divide it. I can't say you have depression subtype X, for example. Right. Yeah. So essentially, do you think then we need to change the way mental health is viewed in its diagnostic form? Because as you mentioned, it is quite problematic 
maybe someone you said, as you mentioned, is more genetically susceptible. Maybe someone's depression is more triggered by some social event that they could change. Do you think that we should still be relying on the DSM-5 as a diagnostic tool, or should there be other measures or ways that we need to um, look at mental health issues and mental health disorders? It's it's a complex question that I certainly wouldn't want us to rely on diagnostic systems solely. I think di- where diagnostic systems have some current utility as well, but they're, they're with flaws and limitations, it might help us think about research so and, and developing new treatments and interventions. So if we want to have better interventions for depression or anxiety, we need to have something we're going to study and look at. So we might get a thousand people who fit into what we call depression, and we might want to advance it by saying, well, some people seem to benefit from medication. Some people don't benefit at all. Some people seem harmed by it. Some people seem to benefit from CBT or DBT or different types of interventions and beginning to understand who that is. I, I, I see down the line a fuzzier picture of shades of grey that we have different types of depression or different types of anxiety and we can better understand it. A challenge for that is we need very large studies. We need many, many people, and that's beginning to happen. So a, a, a typical yeah. randomized control trial for an antidepressant, for example, or an anti-anxiety medication might have 200 people in it, 300 maybe, and that might be a big trial. A, a, a trial for a psychological intervention will be smaller again. It might have 40, 50, 60 people. Mm-hmm. And that's because science, doing the science is hard. But you can see the limitations of doing a trial on 50 people and lots of people will be excluded for lots of reasons because that's how science happens if if you're taking drugs you might not be allowed in or if you're above or below a certain age so we need bigger science to help us advance this but it certainly shows up the, the limitations there are some people there are many people with a diagnosis of depression who do not respond to antidepressants it does not help them at all and they take the tablets yeah. They may get side effects, they may not. Why is that? We we called it depression. There's something happening there. Mm-hmm. And that person, and, and same, same for psychological therapies, of course. It's, it's not as if everyone who goes into talking therapy does well. What's happening? Right. So we can have hypotheses. We might say, well, maybe it's more socially driven. But some studies have tried to rule that out, and they'll get people without significant social issues mm-hmm. just presenting with what we might call the symptoms of depression, and they're not responding. And that's a challenge for us at the moment. We don't fully understand it. But but that's where we can see diagnostic systems may have some utility, but clearly have, have really significant limitations. Yeah. It's interesting how you mentioned about like some people are treatment resistant or they don't respond. I also think it's interesting when thinking about things like who develops mental health issues and who doesn't, you know, the idea of people who do go through trauma or adver- adversity and then they don't develop, let's say, depression. So studies like that can also be important in trying to understand, you know, what is what is happening there, as you said. What are the protecting factors? Is it the environment? Is it personality, family and friend support? So, yeah, there's so much in the field that we still need to uncover. And, um, and that's a really good point. Why do some people not develop different conditions? So I often think about things like post-traumatic stress disorder, where someone has gone through a horrific trauma and yet they don't develop significant problems of course they will not have enjoyed they'll have had a horrible experience that may be psychologically impacting on them 
they won't develop the symptoms we might think of with PTSD. And why is that? Mm. Again, this is where it becomes really complex. So there's dangers with those conversations that it might unintentionally divide people into stronger or weaker, resilient and non-resilient. Right, right. But there's something happening there. And again, this is where we might think that although the biopsychosocial, we said that maybe the bio is overemphasized, there might be biological reasons for that too. There might be different things in people's makeup. I mean, there may be much more complex things. There could be psychological issues about how people's personality or temperament or ways of dealing and thinking about things. There might be background social issues. So there might be some resilience from one's upbringing in early life. If it was more stable, we could hypothesize. But we're not very good at the moment about predicting for individuals. We can predict for populations. We can say we think that X percentage of the population will develop depression in the coming year or over their lifetime or have more than one episode. But it's very hard to bring that down to a single person. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Tracy, um, I want to, you know, I want to move forward and talk about the future aspects of pharmacology. But before I do that, I do want to emphasize on one more thing, which I think is very important, um, and that is the role of psychiatrists and clinicians. When I first started, uh, when I first did the mental health in the community module, I went down this kind of rabbit hole about the critiques of psychiatry, like the works of Thomas Saz or R.D. Lang, you know, all these guys, and, you know, even Joanna Moncrief. Um, and there's a lot of truth in what they say about, as I mentioned in my introduction, the side effects of psychiatric drugs and, you know, the overprescription and how some people have been traumatized for life because, you know, kids that have been prescribed ADHD medication from psychiatrists. So I started getting into, you know, this mentality and a lot of kind of like anger that, you know, gets built up that, oh, this, the system is so corrupt. Psychiatrists are corrupt. Uh, but of course, learning and studying more, you see how many amazing psychiatrists out there and some of the best, you know, people in the field who have modules such as yourself, for example, are psychiatrists. And I know quite a number of people who have been severely traumatized from psychiatric drugs. So I just want like your input, but just words of explanation that not all psychiatrists are bad. Like we can't pinpoint a whole group of people into one box because essentially that's what I did, which is kind of the danger of that bias that we have. So what are your kind of thoughts on, I don't want to call any clinician corrupt, but I would say not taking enough responsibility for the role that they've been put as a mental health practitioner. It's a good question. It's complex, I think, with multiple parts. So some is historical and yeah. based on absolute mistreatment of people now of course this is not unique to psychiatry although we can't we can't get away from it by saying well other people did bad things too but if we think about how physical treatments were at the time and surgery was was, was brutal people did what they thought was appropriate at the time now that, and that there's a social element about what's acceptable but, but we, we can think about things that were called madhouses and people would pay money to come in and look at people who are unwell and they're basically imprisoned but but this is part of without excusing psychiatry of course this is in society that was more brutal and had lower life expectancy and there was a world that was different and how it thought about differences between gender or different ethnicities it was a very different world but this historical legacy mm. that psychiatry carries to this day and we need to recognize and accept that and of course it's not all 200 years ago into the 1940s and 50s or at the huge asylums too there were treatments that were given that were profoundly 
inefficacious and we can think about things like lobotomies what right. they, they helped if you want to use that word society and that they could quieten down someone who is disturbing other people but it's clearly grossly unethical and so some of the treatments over the years have been horrific although i would, would argue that that's not alone to this branch of healthcare psychiatry i think some of the issues come from the differences between mental health and physical health that we mentioned earlier I think a more recent development has been that psychiatrists have to be better at recognising that some people have been harmed by the treatment, so we cannot be in denial about that. Mm -hmm. Now, I think, again, a truth to me, and it's not trying to do that what about really thing and say, but what about this branch or that branch? All medications can cause side effects. Mm -hmm. There's there's no doubt about it. And we could imagine someone, for example, having chemotherapy for cancer care, and the medications can be horrific in terms of side effects. Now, we might argue that if you're undergoing treatment for cancer, you might be willing to have a different balance of payoff for side effects versus gain. So I think we've got to recognize more. Many people have not benefited from medication and many people have been harmed by it. And we need to have cl- be clear eyed about that and try again to work with people to be more honest in conversations at the beginning and, and have, those, have those conversations. I think right. we probably tended to think more about, well, you're saying there's a problem, here's the potential gain. And I think we have to have a more balanced conversation. Although it's interesting to me that this is something also for psychological therapies. It's, it's much less studied. If you do a randomized control trial of medication, you need as part of the ethics to look at side effects. You don't necessarily have to do that for a psychological trial. Mm. And some studies have looked at that and shown where, where they have investigated, some people have been harmed by psychological therapies. Mm. Now, again, you, you might say that's less common. It probably is in psychological interventions. So, but it's not unique. But what I think we can't do is we can't say, well, other other people do, it happens elsewhere, so it's fine. We need to be better at it. So a very recent conversation was recognizing the difficulty many people have had from stopping antidepressants. And people have been saying it for years and psychiatrists have underplayed it or downplayed it. I, I, I don't think intentionally to ignore it, but I think right. they, they didn't see it as much. It wasn't a problem for the psychiatrist, I guess. That said... The, the majority of psychiatrists, the large majority of people who went into healthcare to help other people, who are often the strongest advocates within within medicine for mental health, they're the people, they're doctors who trained in other specialties as surgeons, as physicians, and chose to work with people who had mental health difficulties and to give their life to try support them. I mean, this is why I went and became a psychiatrist. I couldn't become a pediatrician or a surgeon or anything else. And I wanted to support people. I thought I could make a difference. So I think conversations need balance and nuance. I, I think critiquing is great. So I know I know Professor Moncrief in UCL a little, and I think some of the work she does is very constructive and helpful. We need to self-evaluate. We need to reflect. And we need to be willing to say, I got that wrong. But I think to parody us in a sense and, and to say that, psychiatrists are inherently corrupt or malevolent it's it's i mean it's just even to think it through is is a slightly strange position well, why would they do that why would someone go into that in their career now you could have that you, you could argue about does pharma corrupt Did, are we influenced all doctors are influenced by, i mean there's really good evidence on that so pharmaceutical companies can influence it but i, I think you need to have a balanced conversation and Again, there, there will be bad doctors out there in every specialty. There are bad right. professionals everywhere. But I, th- I think the vast majority of psychiatrists are actually doing their best to advocate with, within the limited resources that we all have within healthcare systems, right? So that what we all want to do is improve society, improve housing, improve education. 
that, that that's where we should invest. But when you do need to go see someone, those resources should also be there for you if you need a talking therapy. Oh, yeah. And for some people, if you need a medication. Thank you so much, uh, Derek, for that. I think this was very insightful and needed uh, for our listeners as well to hear and for myself as well, which I think you've made such a constructive and balanced and correct you know, response to that. In, you know, going now ahead with that, uh, you mentioned that we do, we are aware of the fact that a lot of, you know, psychiatric medication doesn't work. So what is the future aspects of pharmacotherapy? Um, you know, you've done a fair point in showing us that drug elimination or saying that drug, are these drugs good or bad is the wrong question. It's more of like, who needs it, what we need to do, um, and so on and so forth. So moving forward, what is kind of like, what do you think should be the strategy in terms of um, psychiatric treatment? Do we need new medications? Do we need to focus on what we know in the field now as precision medicine? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and, and of course, I'm, I'll, I'll take a primarily pharmacological approach, but this is not to de-emphasize psychosocial interventions. No. But if I think ahead just for, for medications, I think a few things I would like to see happening. One is called uh, predictive pharmacotherapy. And then the second part might be development of new compounds. So a challenge for us now, if we develop no new drugs and all we could ever have are the medications that currently exist, what we still might want to do is better predict for whom they'll work, for whom they won't work, and who will develop side effects. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're overlapping groups. They might work for you and you might get side effects. They might not work for you and you might get no side effects. So there's lots of different ways that you could divide that up. So if someone came into me with depression and I only had my current drugs, it would be really good to be able to predict, will you respond or not respond? Will you have side effects? Will you not have side effects? And which medications might be more likely or less likely to work? Now, we know that happens in practice. So for and many people, this is not just from a doctor's point of view. Many patients will say this too, that drug A, B, C, D, none of them worked. Drug C had lots of side effects. And then drug E was, was revolutionary. Yeah. But the next person comes in, drug E does nothing for them. And, they, 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 this is where, and they, their symptoms look the same. And drug B was helpful for them, but they got lots of side effects. So at an epidemiological level and at an individual level, we know that happens. But we, we can only, at the moment, figure it out through trial and error. So mm -hmm. if you come in to me, I'll tell you, well, I'll say what I've just said. I'll say we know this happens. I don't know for you, but if we're going to try medication, it's reasonable to try this drug and then move on to the next one. I've no, I've no particular evidence it'll work better for you, but let's work our way through it. And that's frustrating. So one, it, even if medication is going to work for you, it might take time to get there. What, what if it takes six months, nine months to get to that drug? So that's a, a waste of time and intervention where we could get you better sooner. Or if it turns out the case that we're really not going to get far with medication, well, let's let's not worry about emphasizing that. Let's really focus on the other parts. So having that predictive part, there is science going on to look at it. Mm -hmm. A lot of the work at the moment is looking at genetic makeup. So one hypothesis, you could have you could imagine different ways why it might be the case you respond or not respond. Again, if we think about the depressions, it's, it's, it's likely exactly. that some people, whatever their makeup is, they're just not going to be responders. So one way that's we might look at that is doing genetic analysis and seeing are there patterns, are there some people's makeup that make them more or less susceptible to medication. It's an early field. For genetics work, we often need really big samples to have confidence. It samples into tens and hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. That work is happening now. 
there's emerging data. The data are mixed at the moment. So some of the trials are showing they can't pick up a signal. Some are beginning to show it. So it's certainly a, a worthwhile, if we think about the, the need for mental health interventions and, and we just take medications, it's certainly worthwhile trying to see can we optimize it. The second area is saying, are there other compounds we might make to intervene? Maybe ones that have fewer side effects mm -hmm. or maybe ones that work in a completely different way. And so an example for me with antidepressants is there's a lot of interest at the moment in ketamine and ketamine-like drugs. Mm -hmm. Most traditional antidepressants, they work by modifying serotonin or noradrenaline in your brain. And that seems to help some people. And as is often the case with medication, that this was discovered that, that these chemicals seem to help some people. And then we tried to figure out what they did and they seem to modify serotonin and noradrenaline. And by the way, the, the, there isn't a chemical imbalance. That, that, I, that's not an idea that any reasonable psychiatrist would, would have that you had an imbalance before. But by modulating it, it does seem to help some people. But we know that some, again, some people that just never, ever works. So if we go back to, I could predict medication. So if you came into me and we did, maybe we've got this fancy genetic test and we work out that mm. just won't help you. But maybe there's another way, if we're still just talking about pharmacological interventions, yeah. ketamine activates a different part, a different neurotransmitter called glutamate in the brain. And that seems to help some people. I sometimes give the, the metaphor of a garage and you, and you bring in your car to the garage and it's not working. And all I have is oil. They're the current antidepressants we have. They all do the same thing, roughly modify serotonin and noradrenaline. So you come into me, you, your car, it's not working. I put in oil and that will help some broken down cars. But if you if the problem is your tires are all flat and I just keep putting in oil and then I try a different type of oil and then I try two to oils at the same time. I mean, fundamentally, that can never work for you. <laughs> And then so maybe ketamine is that's in injecting air into the tires. I know it's a bit of a crude metaphor, but I you, love you can it. see how they might be working in different ways. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm still taking an entirely pharmacological approach. So I think if we could have some new compounds and what we, we still don't fully understand is why does ketamine seem to work? And, and mm -hmm. ketamine creates concerns. So ketamine is also a drug of abuse and can be addictive. So that's not a straightforward conversation. So there's other work looking at ketamine-like compounds? Could you create a, a drug like ketamine that's not prone to abuse? Mm. And, and more fundamentally, what's it doing in the brain? But if, I'll, I'll pause one second, I just put a point while I'm thinking it. It sometimes concerns people that with psychiatric drugs, we often don't know exactly how they're working. Right. So people might be thinking, oh my goodness, why would you give ketamine if <laughs> you don't know what's fully what it's doing? That's true with almost every medication for every physical health system in the body. We know roughly what they do, but the, the more you begin to analyze, if you start to take any drug for any condition, what exactly is it doing in, in your brain, your body? So an anticonvulsant for epilepsy, we partially understand why they work, but not entirely, not mm -hmm. at a molecular and cellular level. Mm -hmm. So I think medicine is often about pragmatically finding that something works, working out the risks and the benefits and trying to better understand it. So to summarize that point, I think predictive pharmacotherapy to, to minimize mm. harm and to maximize effectiveness of our existing drugs and then potentially some new compounds. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for that. Dr. Tracy, I'm, I'm wary of the time. Do we have time for one more question or, or should we wrap up and... Uh... Try me one more question okay. and I'll keep it brief. Great. Um, so 
In search of more effective treatments, uh, we know that clinicians are now exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelic compounds, which first, personally for me, I love the field and I think it's a very promising avenue for addressing mental health crisis, although obviously we know it has social and you know legal kind of uh, obstacles. Now, your latest research, uh, which is on novel psychoactive substances, and I want to clarify these as these are not like your classic parent drug, uh, such as psilocybin or cannabis. So basically, I just want to talk a little bit about that. What are novel psychoactive substances? How much do we really know about them? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a really interesting area for me. So people sometimes call them new or novel psychoactive substances. In the UK, they're sometimes known as legal highs, although they're they're not legal. (laughs) Traditionally, over the past 50, 60, 70, 100 years, there have been half a dozen drugs of abuse. There'll be ones everyone's familiar with, so cocaine, cannabis, uh, you can think of a few more, amphetamines, ecstasy, and so forth, heroin. And, and that's been relatively stable up until about the year 2005, thereabouts. I mean, it depends how you classify it exactly. In, in the last 15 years or so, there's been an explosion in the number of available illicit drugs. Mm-hmm. At the moment, there's close to a thousand of them. So if you think, you know, 20 years ago, there were six or seven, right. and now we have a thousand. And that's of the ones we've identified, so probably far more. And there's been a strange and un- unexpected growth in the market for pharmacologically developing new compounds and selling them on drugs markets. Now, with a thousand drugs out there, we don't understand many of them. Most of them, we have very limited understanding exactly how they work. We can cluster them. So many of them are like cannabis, although they've nothing to do with the cannabis right. plant. They're synthetic. People sometimes call them scras or spice. We have novel synthetic uh, stimulants. They're drugs like ecstasy and amphetamines. We have novel depressants, drugs like heroin, but they're, they're, they're newly synthesized. People might have heard of the novel fentanyls as, as a group. And there are new dissociatives and psychedelics, drugs like PCP or ketamine and like LSD. So there's been a huge growth in them. My interest in it is trying to understand how they can impact people's mental health. And this is a complex area. So most people who take illicit drugs are not necessarily harmed by them. I don't advocate drug use for people because I think it's a complex message. But in the same way, most people who drink a glass of wine or eat a hamburger aren't necessarily physically harmed. But we might not recommend that at a public health level. But some people are harmed. Again, it seems to be a complex thing about maybe your own makeup, maybe the the type of drug you Mm. take, maybe how much you take it, and maybe other factors in your life as well. And some people seem to be having profound mental and psychological harms. In in mental health, the area that really interests me is the synthetic cannabinoids, the drugs a bit like cannabis, where they seem to be causing psychosis. Mm. That's quite profound in some people. And a lot of my work at the moment is trying to understand people's awareness of it within mental health in particular, and doing some education work for patient groups and care groups. Wow. I guess there's still so much to be researched, right, about legal highs. And again, I just want to emphasize the fact that this is not like, for example, like psilocybin, which also has so much stigma around it. But we know, for example, it has transformative experiences uh, for people with like smoking cessation and depression, uh, which I think like studies by John Hopkins and their team had showed, right? So these novel psychoactive substances are synthetic um, and then they actually cause adverse reactions in people. They, they can do for many people. Again, okay. it varies with drugs and it, not all drugs are equally harmful. 
So psychedelics in general are typically less harmful right. than, than most other drugs, I'd say with opioids like, like heroin. So there's, oh, there's a difference between the drug itself, there's a difference in how you consume it and so forth. We really don't know enough about these compounds. There's mm-hmm. so many of them. We're really fumbling the dark a bit with it. But it's, it's a complex and it's a worrying area. Again, most people will not suffer very serious harms from them. But enough people are harmed that we are we were right to be concerned and interested about it and curious about well, what are they doing and uh, what is the harm profile. Very fascinating. Dr. Tracy, I would like to sincerely thank you from my heart for your time today and, you know, your input. It has been truly insightful, a really rich discussion, and I'm very grateful to have you here on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you guys for tuning in and listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.